There are, are some things in life that you just can't ignore. And, and I admit that, I have to admit, I'm kind of bugged this morning. Actually, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I, I'm disgusted a, about a social injustice that quite honestly has been going on too long. And it's time, it's time for this social injustice to stop. And my guess, my guess is that you're all aware of it. You, you probably haven't thought about it, because if you thought about this great injustice, you'd be as ticked off as I am this morning. I'm also shocked, I have to tell you, that, that none of the Democratic presidential candidates or President Trump has said a word about it. Both parties have ignored this travesty, this great injustice, this wrong that needs to be made right. I guess they're busy with other things. But if that isn't bad enough, I'll stand up here and tell you that I've never even heard a pastor preach a message on it. But the time's come. We as Christians, we need to stand up and be heard. And guess what? Today's the day. It's time to speak up for the little people. It's time to speak up for the mistreatment of Santa's elves. The elves are mistreated. They're underappreciated. They have to work at the North Pole. It's cold up there. They do that 12 months a year. It's dark for half the year. And think about the work they have to do. It's repetitive over and over again, making toys. They never get to leave their workbench except for a hot cocoa break or maybe to sing some silly elf songs. And there's another elf that I recently heard about. This poor guy or gal have to spend their entire Christmas season sitting on a shelf. Well, there once was an elf who did rebel. You might remember his name, his picture's up on the screen. Hermie. Hermie's story is told in the cartoon Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Hermie was fed up with toy making. See, Hermie's calling in life was to be a dentist. And when he finally built up the courage to speak up, he was punished. Hermie was ridiculed. Hermie realized that he was a misfit, and his speaking out caused him to be ostracized. He was basically forced to leave Santa's village and survive on his own in the cold Arctic. And no one was punished for it. You might even call it a hate crime. And there's one more thing that bugs me. The elves, the elves do all the work. And who gets the glory? Santa. He gets all the credit. He gets the fame. He gets the songs written about him. He gets the TV specials. He gets the parade. He gets his picture on Christmas cards. He gets that big seat in the stores where all the kids come and sit, and it's just not right. Santa's the hero. The elves are reduced to a supporting cast of working imbeciles. They're portrayed as a bunch of smiling, singing, mindless characters. I think maybe we should start a social campaign. The Elf Liberating Force, better known as ELF. Is anybody with me this morning? Yeah. Well, all kidding aside, I would guess that many of us have felt at times like an unappreciated elf. Maybe it happened at work. You know, you did the work, you worked hard, you put on all the hours and the boss got the glory. Or it happened at school, you were a good student 
You stayed out of trouble, but all the attention went to the jocks, the cheerleaders, and the popular kids. It even happens at home. Wives, you're not going to like, or you are going to like this. Some of the husbands might want to talk to me afterwards, but some of you wives have lived this. You do the housework. You do the laundry. You make the meals. You take care of the kids if you got them. And, and, and when your husband comes home, what does he do? He watches TV, he takes a nap, or he plays video games. And yet he's called the head of the household. It's not right. It's time for a rebellion. I don't like it that my wife's agreeing with that. A prostitute named Rahab who saved people. Remember a young shepherd boy who became king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelites. Remember a young shepherd boy who became king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies. Remember a young shepherd boy who became king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies, and then a shepherd boy who became king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies, and ends up being boy who became king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies, and ends up being mentioned king, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies and ends up being mentioned in Jesus, or a prostitute named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies and ends up being mentioned in Jesus' lineage. Toot named Rahab who saved some Israelite spies and ends up being mentioned in Jesus' lineage. Rahab who saved some Israelite spies and ends up being mentioned in Jesus' lineage. Others Rahab who saved some Israelite spies and ends up being mentioned in Jesus' lineage. Or there was the faithful daughter-in-law named Ruth, who's also mentioned in Jesus' lineage. And then there were a few fishermen, a tax collector, maybe a zealot or two, who lived with Jesus for three years. We call them the disciples. You might recall a timid young man named Timothy, who was a church leader and was taken under the wing by Paul. And then there was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote a letter that made it into the Bible. And if you look through the Bible, the list goes on and on. These people were ordinary. They were nobodies. They were little people who God used in his plan to make a huge difference. And the, the lessons from these little people actually guide our Christian life. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be powerful, powerful to help further God's kingdom. We have value. We've been created in his image. We have a responsibility, though, to, to live life with a purpose. God's life-changing purpose. We can do great things through Christ. Christ who strengthens us. This morning we're going to be looking at three little people from Jesus' birth narrative. Joseph, Mary's betrothed. The owner of the inn. The inn that had no room. And some shepherds. We're going to start with the innkeeper. You know, basically, we don't know anything about this little person. We don't have a name. We don't know if there was one innkeeper, or if there was a husband and wife, or, or whatever. But the innkeeper is indirectly mentioned in Luke 2.7. That verse reads, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for them in the inn. That's it. Mary gave birth to Jesus. His first bed was a manger, an animal trough. Why? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now when 
Luke used the word that we translate as in, it might not be what we expect. An inn could have been a spare room in someone's house. It might have been a series of roofed stalls built on the outside of an enclosure. The inns of those days certainly are not the hotels of today. They had no real privacy, no indoor plumbing, get this, no Wi-Fi, no comfortable bed, and evidently not even such a crude place was available for Mary and Joseph. The early church father, Justin Martyr, in his writing, Dialogue with Trifo, stated that Jesus' birth occurred in a cave. Others have proposed that the manger was in an open courtyard. It didn't even have a roof. Our nativity sets that we put up picture a stable or a barn. And regardless of the structure or the lack of a structure, structure, Jesus was born in the place for animals. And where there are animals, there is manure. And where there is manure, there is filth and odor. Our Savior was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, perhaps without even a roof over his head. He was born into utter poverty. And he was born there because the innkeeper had no room. And so the lesson from the innkeeper is to make room. Make room for Jesus. You know, as you think about this event that happened, we might wonder why there was no room. You know, didn't Joseph call ahead or make online reservations? Wouldn't that have been nice if he could have done that? But I'm guessing back then you, you showed up in town and you looked for a place to stay. Bethlehem was packed with people coming in town for the census. It was like having the World Series or the Stanley Cup Finals or the Super Bowl in town. In a very small town. All the places to stay were filled. And I think we understand that. And we understand that it certainly might not have been Joseph's fault that there was no place for them to stay, but I have to ask, did the innkeeper have an excuse? How could anyone not make room for a girl who was about to deliver a baby? I mean, wouldn't you invite them into your own house? Couldn't you ask someone to move to another place? No one made room for Jesus. And it still happens today. Our American culture is becoming less Christian. Let me give you an example. We, a lot of times, teach a big bang theory in schools without the mention of a creator. Our, our phones, these incredible pieces of technology, were made by men and women. They didn't just randomly happen. After millions of years, a phone didn't pop out of the ground. Decades of intelligent design went into these things. And yet, our kids and so many are taught to believe that humans, us incredibly complex humans, so much more complex than any phone ever made, that we simply happened. We simply happened by chance over time. Seriously? It takes more faith to believe in the big bang or, bang or evolution than it does to trust in a loving creator. And so many so-called enlightened people make no room for God. Some have their own version of spirituality. They make up a religion based on what they want to believe. And just because I want to believe something doesn't make it true. Too often there's no room for truth. 
Others think Jesus was simply a good man. And I would agree he was a good man, but Jesus was infinitely more than that. He was one with God, part of the Trinity. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, and then he did it. He died and he rose again from the dead. That's pretty amazing. I think that's all the evidence we could ever want to trust in him. And still, some have no room for a savior. See, the lesson from the little people at the inn is to make room for Jesus. And to make room for Jesus is to accept that he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Making room for Jesus is to ask him to forgive our sins. Making room for Jesus is to declare that he is the Lord of our life. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, it says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's an Advent hymn. It's Thou didst leave thy throne. It declares this. It says, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. The lesson from the innkeeper is straightforward. Open your heart to Jesus. Believe in him. Make room for him. And once we do that, once we've made room, we can be taught the, the second lesson from the little people of Jesus' birth. And this lesson comes from Joseph, Mary's betrothed. Joseph teaches us to accept the challenge. If you think about it, Joseph was certainly a little person in terms of the press he received in the Bible. If baby Jesus is the star, and baby Jesus is the star, Joseph was the guy that was on the edge of the stage. He never said a word. He's easy to miss. In a couple minutes, we're going to read about Joseph's lesson to us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. You might want to open it up to your Bible up to Matthew 1, verse 18. But before we go to, to Matthew's passage, Luke 2 tells us that just prior to Mary giving birth, <clears throat> Joseph took her on a road trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fill out a census for his taxes. And you think about it, you think, well, great job, Joseph. Joseph gets attention for dragging his pregnant wife-to-be 70 miles on a donkey. I mean, can you imagine Joseph saying to Mary during the ninth month of her pregnancy, um, hey, hon, I've, I've got some business to do in Bethlehem. You don't mind riding 70 miles on a donkey, do you? How many gals would be impressed with that type of guy? Not many. If, if that's all we knew of Joseph, we might conclude that calling Joseph a little person was to give him way too much credit. But the fact is, we do know more about Joseph. Joseph had to go on this trip. Prophecy in Micah 5 said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth. According to the edict from the ruler Caesar Augustus, Joseph had to register for the census in his hometown. His hometown was the city of David, known as Bethlehem. And there's actually a bonus lesson here in this, about these little people. And the bonus lesson is that God is over all little people, big governments, and powerful rulers. God put it in the heart of the great Caesar Augustus to require a census. 
God used a pagan ruler for his purposes. And as a result, Mary and Joseph were exactly where she needed to be for Jesus' birth. That's amazing. Joseph did have a shining moment in Jesus' birth narrative, though it happened months before Jesus' birth. This moment was recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. And, And without this passage, Joseph wasn't at the manger, and Mary wasn't in Bethlehem. Reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. As Pastor David mentioned a few weeks back, to be pledged or betrothed was like an engagement only more. A betrothal was a legally binding contract between the man and the woman. It could only be broken by the formal process of a divorce. See, a a betrothed couple was considered husband and wife, but even so, sexual relations during the period of betrothal were considered immoral and were punishable by stoning to death. Mary was pregnant. Joseph wasn't the father. Continuing Matthew 1, verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph could have made a public issue of Mary's apparent adulterous affair. At the extreme, it could have cost her her life. But instead, Joseph sought to quietly divorce her. Matthew continues, he says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God intervened. Joseph received an angelic visit. This child would be special. He would save the people from their sins. And then Matthew finished this passage writing. He said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Joseph accepted the challenge. He accepted the call of God. Joseph believed the angel. He didn't write off that angelic vision as maybe being caused by something he ate before he went to sleep. And Joseph knew that marrying Mary wasn't going to be easy. People would talk. Some would probably call Joseph a fool. And yet he knew it was the right thing to do. And God is calling us to accept the challenge today. You're never too young or too old. Your faith isn't too weak. Your lack of Bible knowledge isn't a good excuse. You may not be qualified, but that doesn't matter. God takes delight in doing great things with unqualified people. The only thing that can keep us little people from doing great things for God is our unwillingness. (coughs) We say no to God. We say, I can't do it. It can't be done. I don't want to do it. Don't say no to God. 
God might be challenging you to do something simple like invite a friend, family member, or neighbor to this week's Christmas Eve services. Accept the challenge. Do it. God might call you to get involved in a new ministry in 2020. Maybe He's calling you to join a community group. Maybe He's calling you to serve in the community. He might be calling you to something that's going to take you out of your comfort zone. It may not be easy, but it will be worth it. And so accept the challenge. God could challenge us to do a major overhaul of our life. He could be dealing with our selfish attitude. We spend all our money on what we want, but we can't seem to find any money for God's work. Maybe we've got a critical spirit. We easily find fault in other people while ignoring our own shortcomings. God might be calling us to be a better husband or wife. Instead of wanting our spouse to change, He's calling us to look at how we can change. And that one should hit every one of us who is married. And it's also a lesson for those who would like to be married someday. Accept God's challenge. Accept His call to change. He'll be with you. He'll make it happen. But accepting God's challenge most likely won't make us famous. It won't result in material blessings. Life won't somehow become magically easier. But I do promise you this, life will have greater purpose. And I have to ask, what more could we desire? On the, the night of Jesus' birth, the shepherds made room for Jesus. They accepted the challenge. And they've got a pretty good-sized role in the nativity narrative in, chapter, in Luke. The shepherds are mentioned in several verses, but the fact is shepherds were little people. Shepherds were not exactly refined citizens. They lived a hard, solitary life. They were considered ceremonially unclean. You can imagine them being just a bit grimy. They might have smelled like the sheep that they watched. You might not have wanted to sit next to them at a dinner. But scholars speculate this. They speculate that the shepherds, though simple, were devout followers of God. They were chosen by God to be the first to see the newborn king. When the angels appeared to them proclaiming Jesus' birth, the shepherds didn't waste any time. Luke tells us that they said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And just to make sure that we get the point, Luke says that they went with haste to find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. You could picture them almost running to the manger. And when they arrived, Luke recorded their reaction in Luke 2.17. He says, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And then Luke adds, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The lesson that we receive from the shepherds is to talk about it. The, the shepherds shared what they heard and what they saw the night Jesus was born. They shared it with anyone who was willing to listen. I imagine them jumping for joy, giving each other high fives, grinning from ear to ear. They're perhaps talking all at once, retelling the amazing sights and sounds of the angels. 
You can imagine them maybe arguing over who was the first one to see the baby Jesus. And you got to wonder if their loud proclamation woke up the entire town of Bethlehem. Because this was big news. They had to proclaim the Savior's birth. And so do we. So do we. You know, the elves in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon, they really didn't have it so bad. They got to work for a good man. He took care of them, providing food and shelter. He loved them as if they were his own. And the elves got to be part of something that was so much bigger than them. They played a role in bringing gifts to children around the world. And so if being an elf in a TV cartoon is a good gig... Think about how much more amazing it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God takes care of us. Jesus saved us. The Holy Spirit is living in us. We have the promise of eternal life. And in response, in response to all that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we make room for Jesus in our heart. We call Him Savior. We trust our life to Him. And then God calls us to live for Him. We accept that challenge. And we talk about it. We tell anybody who will listen what Jesus has done for us. You know, the world might consider us little people. But just like Joseph and the shepherds, God calls us to be part of great things. Life-changing things. Things that impact people's lives for eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we go through life and we, we might wonder, and what, I do, what am I doing? Does it really matter? I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not the best person. I don't always listen to what you call me to do. We truly think of ourselves as little people. But Father, you love us. You sent your Son to die for us. You call us to Serve. We call us to share the good news. You call us to impact people's lives for your glory. While being a little person keeps us humble, we realize that through Christ we can do great things, things more amazing than we ever imagined. And so this morning I pray, I pray for all of us. I pray that we would rededicate our lives to you. That this Christmas would be a fresh start, an opportunity to make room for you in our lives, to make you the central, the priority of everything we do. To accept the call, the challenge, to serve you in, in the little things, or maybe the big things, but to serve you in everything. And Father, we pray that we would see you at work. Then in our lives, as we do those 
callings that you've put on our heart, that we would see you changing lives, that you would get the glory, that you would get the praise, and that your kingdom would grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please stand for our closing song.